Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find their opinions, content, expressed, disturbing, and objectionable. No one's no one's uh, spit at us or said anything awful to us yet. What's our faces? Behind their backs, they're like, right. "You losers! We're never doing that again." Hello, everybody. Again, this is Todd Fredericks, uh, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And um, I'm really excited today. We have a specialty spotlight, and it's with one of my classmates, uh, Dr. William Klein. And uh, I'll leave that uh, the rest of it to Nassarg. Yeah. Uh, welcome, everyone, to another episode of Rotations. <clears throat> I have a bit of a sore throat. Excuse me. Um, yeah, as Dr. Fredericks mentioned, we're here with Dr. Bill Klein, a general surgeon um, here in Southeast Ohio. So we're excited to talk to him about uh, his work and what the path that he took to get there. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Klein. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, quite a pleasure to be here. And actually, my drive from Marietta to uh, Athens was enjoyable. It's uh, brisk, but uh, the sun is out. And uh, just coming through uh, into Athens uh, brought back a lot of a lot of memories for me. And yeah, oh, you H Com grad, right? I am. I am. I uh, graduated no, with uh, Dr. Com. It was not H Com. Right. That's right. We it are OU Com grads. Yeah, we're ancient. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Ninety three. Class of ninety three. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. That's when I was born. <laughs> <laughs> now you're scaring me. Thanks. Yeah. Nice. Really appreciate that, Nisar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're also joined by my classmate, Zach Kuhn, who's uh, been on the show before, and uh, we're happy to have him back. Yep. Great to be back. So, um, Dr. Klein, tell us about your background. Well, uh, my background is I, I grew up from uh, in the area of western Pennsylvania, just outside of uh, Pittsburgh, and and uh, really nobody in my family was in medicine at all. In fact, uh, no one in my immediate family even went to uh, college. So I went to uh, undergraduate uh, college in uh, just out of, outside of Pittsburgh at St. Vincent College. Most people know that uh, being the training camp for the Pittsburgh Steelers in the summertime. Uh, from there, I had uh, taught school for two years in uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, which is eastern uh, area of Pennsylvania, just uh, just east of the Susquehanna River, and I taught chemistry and biology for for two years while I secured um, a scholarship through the United States Air Force, and ultimately attended Ohio University. And it was a little roundabout way that I got here to begin with. I after I got accepted to a school, it was in Des Moines, and uh, being a, a teacher, I didn't have a whole lot of time to arrange interviews and. Uh, I nearly uh, did not come to the OU Com interview since I'd already had a spot secured, but I had uh, second feelings about doing it, and I came and absolutely loved it, and this is where I came. So, from there, I uh, after I, I I graduated from here, and I spent my third and fourth years here on campus, mm -hmm. uh, and really had a profound impact in terms of um, how I ended up doing general surgery, but. Uh, after, uh, after doing my medical school here, I went to Michigan at uh, Genesis Regional Medical Center, part of the, the Michigan State College of Osteopathic Medicine uh, presidency in general surgery. So uh, I spent five years in Michigan at Genesis Regional, and uh, then I went active duty with the United States Air Force and spent four years at Wright-Patterson Medical Center just outside of Dayton, Ohio. Cool. So what got you interested in, in general surgery to begin with? Well, it's kind of funny. You know, I, um, I came to, uh, to medical school with a distinct interest in emergency medicine. I'd worked my way through college as a paramedic, and uh, I knew for sure I was going to do emergency medicine up until the time I did my first ER rotation as a third-year medical student. 
and absolutely hated it. Oh, really? Absolutely <laughs> hated it. Absolutely hated it. I said, there's no way that I'm going to do that for a life. And, uh, and then, lo and behold, here at OU Crom, I uh, had our general surgery rotation with uh, Dr. Jerome Axelrod, and he had a profound influence in terms of uh, my career path. After that rotation, I uh, knew I wanted to be a general surgeon. And uh, not only did I, he help guide me in terms of my career path, but also where I would eventually do my training. Uh, so he had a profound impact on, on my life in, in terms of what I became and where I went to do my training. Yeah, we need to give props to Dr. Axrod because he had a profound impact on my training too. Because if it hadn't been for Jerome, I'd have gotten kicked out of medical school <laughs> because he saved me from surgeons. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 So if you're out there, Dr. Axelrod, there are many people who are thankful for your input into their careers. <laughs> Absolutely. And here's another, here's another little uh, um, uh, point for Dr. Axelrod. To this day, and I still take uh, lots of uh, medical students, as I was talking earlier before we uh, went on air, I have a lot of uh, West Virginia students now from the practice where I'm at. But uh, Dr. Axelrod had a series of uh, seven essay questions that he sent to all the students. So whether you were on campus at Athens or if you were in Dayton or at that time we had a Toledo campus or wherever you were at, you were expected to complete these questions. Uh, of course, I, being here based in Athens, um, got to go over these questions with Dr. Axelrod personally. And basically what he did was pick out certain uh, questions that were germane to general surgery, uh, things like going over appendicitis, diverticulitis, gallbladder disease, breast cancer, bowel obstruction. So a lot of the things that we as general surgeons probably make up the majority of our practice. And uh, he just would go through these questions. You were expected to kind of answer them. There are no right or wrong answers, no like A, B, C, D type of thing. It's just like, tell me what you learned about how you work up this patient. And a lot of those questions were like that. You have a patient in the emergency room with some right lower quadrant adultane. Walk me through the process. How are you going to work the patient up? What's going to be the historical questions you're going to want to know or be pertinent? What kind of labs are you going to right? What kind of operation are you going to do? Uh, and then what kind of orders are you going to write for post-op? Profound questions in terms of developing the mindset of a medical student, making that transition from uh, A is right, B is wrong, C is wrong, and I'm not sure about D, but so <laughs> making that transition. And so I use those very questions to this day. He got it out of Levine's surgery handbook. Remember that? Oh, do yes. You remember, do you remember that? That yeah. little, you, and it was, in a, and no one knew about. It. You would probably know because if Jerome would have told you. But yeah. he told, he said, "This is where I'm taking my questions. You study this book front to front, cover to cover, because he knew I was a medicine guy." Yeah. And he said, "Just study it front to back, Toddy." And he said, "You'll pass the test, no problem." And that's yeah. exactly what I did. He was, he was a great mentor. I think he's, still, I think he's still alive in Florida, isn't he? I think he is. You know, he's uh, old. He's, he's got to be <clears> way up there. He's a uh, yeah. lovely teacher. Yeah, he was a profound uh, impact in terms of the uh, American College of Osteopathic Surgeons, and, and I have not seen any, uh, any obituary notices, but I know he was, uh, he was pretty elderly whenever I was rotating here. Um, but uh, So those were, were great questions, and uh, over the years, about the only thing I've added and most recently decided I needed to add this just based on the um, a training of what I felt were uh, uh, was lacking in a lot of the students I was seeing, and that's writing IV orders, understanding mm -hmm. the physiologic basis and scientific basis behind writing IV orders. And so uh, I developed a series of questions to kind of go with those questions that I give out to my medical students the very first day that they rotate with me to say, these are, you know, our uh, fluid and electrolyte questions. You walk mm -hmm. through those, 
and you find those answers, and then we talk about why we write the orders we write. Yeah. And, you know, kind of going off of that, you're talking about you're also a teacher, right? You, you help teach medical students. Right. Uh-huh. Um, so let's say that someone listening uh, to the podcast has their surgery rotation with you tomorrow. You know, what, what are some tips that uh, can help them succeed? Well, I think probably the, the biggest thing that really helps students do well is that you be proactive. And so being proactive means, hey, I'm looking at Dr. Klein's schedule, or I want to know what Dr. Klein's going to be doing in the OR tomorrow. And uh, he could ask my nurse, he could ask me, but sometimes I don't really know for sure. My nurse would probably know better <laughs> than I do. But uh, find out what we're going to be doing that day and read up on it. So you want to, and read up means you know your anatomy. <clears throat> Look through uh, a procedure book so you kind of have an idea of basically the procedure that's going to be involved. And that way, whenever I start asking pimp questions while we're doing the dissection, you're going to know the anatomy and, and, and somewhat maybe follow the basis by which we are proceeding through that surgery. What about the flip side of that? You know, what are things that you've seen that uh, kind of hamper students or that make them look bad? Um, you know, things that you would suggest avoiding? Well, um, basically not reading, not being prepared is probably the biggest thing that makes students look bad. Um, the other thing, and it's really not really just germane to general surgery, but I, I tell students uh, when they come to surgery, uh, ultimately what I'll do is have them do patient presentations. So they'll kind of coattail with me for uh, a day or so just to get an idea of the patient flow and kind of what the sense of the office is like. But after that, then I'll send them in to see new patients. <clears throat> I want them to be able to, you know, present a patient because sometimes I think that's what's often lacking in some of the students, their confidence and ability to present a patient, like, or even how to present a patient. So, you know, I tell them, uh, if you look at in the New England Journal of Medicine and some of their clinical state, uh, case studies, I want them to be able to kind of present a patient somewhat like that. Tell the story of the patient. Just don't start giving me different facts and, and statements about the patient, but tell them a patient. Tell me the story. Like this patient was well until, you know, six months ago they developed a, were lifting something and developed a, a pain in the, in the right groin and, you know, Three weeks after that, they developed a, a mass. So, you know, tell me the story about how this whole clinical problem or situation developed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. Um, so, okay, then if we kind of switch gears here and talk a little bit about your practice, um, what are some of the common diagnoses that you see? Well, uh, our practice, we do a lot of endoscopy as part of general surgeons. So I'd say one of our top diagnoses is just screening colonoscopies, which is a very mm -hmm. important thing. Um, because colon cancers, as you may know, is second leading, second to third leading cause for, for cancer for men and women in the United States, largely a preventable cancer by doing a screening colonoscopy. So that's my plug for screening colonoscopies. <laughs> you can uh, avoid a lot of pain by getting a, a screening colonoscopy. So that's, uh, that's one of the top ones. Uh, cholecystitis, uh, gallbladder disease, uh, inguinal hernias, uh, diverticulitis, uh, bowel obstructions, uh, ventral hernias, uh, appendicitis. Uh, since we do a, a lot of endoscopies in our practice, we uh, see a lot of patients with dysphagia as well as a reflux mm -hmm. and uh, abnormal uh, mammograms. And then uh, as general surgeons, we also do a fair amount of dermatology. So we see a lot of lumps and bumps, uh, skin lesions type of thing. 
What are some, uh, so what are some conditions then that you see in your practice that could potentially be treated in, in office at a family practice clinic or somewhere outside of the OR? Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say uh, a lot of that is probably um, uh, like the skin lesions, uh, whether it's epidermal inclusion cysts or even some um, minor uh, like nevi that are, are small. So sometimes those could be uh, perhaps biopsied, which in, in my experience, a lot of uh, the primary care docs that uh, are referring have already done that. So I, I think mm-hmm. they're kind of doing what they're, they're doing. And the other thing is probably just the INDs of like uh, skin abscesses. Mm-hmm. So, but outside of that, that's about all I really see that uh, would be a potential fit in that category. Sure. So um, what are some current developments then in your specialty that you've seen uh, that have caught your interest? Things that you, you could see having a bigger um, significance in the OR as, uh, you know, as time moves forward? Well, I think the biggest uh, push now is this uh, concept of doing natural orifice surgery. So mm-hmm. rather than making <laughs> incisions on patients, you know, at one point we made big incisions and then the big push was laparoscopic surgery and even robotic surgery was to make littler incisions. And now the, the, I think the push is, well, what if we don't make any incisions at all and use the natural orifices, whether it's the mouth or through the nose, to access the areas where we need to access? And I think that's a big push. I'm not sure how, how much that can be developed, but I think that's one of the biggest trends now in terms of uh, what's going on in, in surgery. And then the other thing that's, I think, of an interest in terms of not what we do, but basically how surgeons work is um, changing. And part of that is, you know, I'm um, a private practitioner. So um, what's going to be different, I think, is that there's going to be more of a move towards employment of surgeons um, by hospital systems and maybe surgeons working shifts and not so much doing what I've done like Dr. Axelrod did when he was in practice, we do private practice. There is no shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you work till the, the work's done, and uh, the next day you do the same. Is that pretty common? Uh, it's still pretty common, uh, but there's more and more um, development of like a surgicalist program where uh, surgeons will work 12 or 24 hours in the, in the hospital and and uh, cover emergencies and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's potentially a, a change that's going to happen and be more prevalent, mm-hmm. I, I foresee. Sure. Interesting. Um, yeah, Zach, if you have any questions, yeah, feel um, free to chime <clears> in. <throat> so um, if you're going to be, a, like, a, as a private practice, does that mean that you're not going to be under, like, the health insurance of the hospital, so you're going to have to cover your own expenses in that sense? Well, exactly, yeah. So uh, and, and so we, as a, as a practice now, I'm in a group, so uh, there's, there's three other general surgeons in our practice, which makes it um, more beneficial in terms of providing time to be off. Um, on average, I'll cover every third weekend. Mm-hmm. But um, the uh, uh, patients that I see through the week or whatever, uh, uh, if I'm not being covered over the weekend by my partners, it's, it's kind of, you know, my patients. So whether I've worked three, uh, three, 12-hour days or 18-hour days in a row, and they come in the middle of the night, they're still calling me. Now, if it's on the weekend, and it'll be be my partner. So that's about the only time we kind of cross-cover or if we're out of town on a, on a weekend. So, 
Um, do you think that now that like you're kind of seems like you're kind of, like having your own private practice, is that like do we getting some of the control back with your patients from the hospital? Because I know with a lot of doctors I've talked to, it seems like when they work through a hospital, they're kind of giving a large like, large part of that control to the hospital. Where they can't really like I don't know. I guess not as personal of a relationship they have with their patients. Oh, I agree, one hundred percent. In fact, it's it's my belief that. Uh, um, the best benefit for the patient is not to have your doctor employed by a hospital system. Uh, now, they can be dependent on the hospital system, but uh, I would say in general, um, that's not, perhaps not always a, a good thing because what's in the best interest for the patient may not be in the best interest for the hospital system, and you have a physician that is then torn between uh, what's best for my patient versus what's best for my job. Mm -hmm. And if you're in private practice, you're sheltered from that because you're not employed. Yeah, those are both really good points. And, and one question I had, too, kind of more on the just choosing initially medicine versus surgery. Um, how do you, you know, as a surgeon then, do you still maintain uh, close relationships with patients? Uh, I guess because, you know, you're operating on them. It's not like being, uh, you know, seeing them in office. Mm -hmm. So how does that relationship then work with the patient? Because that's one thing, you know, I, I don't know what I'm interested in yet, but I, I would like to have a relationship with patients and kind of maintain that. So how do you, how do, you do that as a surgeon? Well, it's, it's a little more difficult. Certainly, uh, you know, being a, uh, an osteopathic physician, we have a, a profound respect for uh, family practice and, and kind of what they do. But uh, we, as general surgeons, do have uh, somewhat of a practice where there is a continuing uh, patient relationships. So sometimes I may operate on somebody for their gallbladder and then they come back to me for a, uh, say an inguinal hernia or they might have a breast cancer. And so a lot of times once I've made a contact with a patient for a particular surgical problem, they develop another problem and their family doctor says, well, who would you like to go see? And they'll say, well, I'd like to go see Dr. Klein if hopefully I uh, did a good job. But uh, so that's one aspect. Now, the other aspect where I find there is a continuum of care is in the treatment of cancer. We, as general surgeons, uh, treat a, a large portion of cancers, colon cancers, as we just talked about, being the second leading cause, second, third leading cause for uh, cancer in the United States. Uh, we treat the majority of colon cancers. And so uh, those patients then become fairly lifelong patients for us. We'll do their uh, follow-up endoscopies at a year and two years and three years and then five year and then every five years after their surgery. So we continue to have that uh, interaction with uh, with those patients. In the same way with breast cancer, which is one of the my interests in in, in general surgery in particular, um, and and those patients we'll see back uh, on a continuing basis for for years. And when you chose surgery, then. Um why did you stick to general surgery versus something like trauma or some orthopedic or, or some other specialty within that? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, I owe part of that to the United States Air Force. I had a profound interest in uh, in trauma surgery, and after I finished, and I was deferred to do a, a civilian residency at Michigan State through uh, Genesis Regional Medical Center. So after my five-year general surgery, uh, uh, wrote or uh, residency was up it became time to either uh, do a fellowship or uh, proceed to active duty with the Air Force. So I uh, opted to try for a deferment to do a fellowship. So I was uh, enrolled to do a fellowship at Grant Medical Center in Columbus in trauma. That was uh, my interest. However, the uh, Air Force said uh, uh, no. Uh, <laughs> so 
Uh, I was to report no. for active duty at uh, Wright-Patterson Medical Center as a general surgeon, as a staff general surgeon there. And part of the joke is military intelligence. So, so shortly after I got there, I'd say within a year of uh, my being active duty at Wright-Patterson, they decided, well, there really isn't enough exposure uh, to or for the military surgeons and trauma, and we need to start setting up trauma rotations for our surgeons <laughs> to go to like... You're a year too early. Yeah, so... <laughs> But anyhow, um, after that, I decided, well, you know, probably trauma is not maybe what I want to do. And so I did not pursue a trauma fellowship because um, I would have been eligible after two years of active duty to reapply to um, do a deferment for the trauma fellowship then. But I elected not to do so. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk, can you walk through a little bit of the difference between training and practicing in the military, um, in military rather than civilian um, life? Well, I think uh, in terms of military uh, training you are a practice what's nice about that is that you know patients don't have to worry about cost or expense of things and so uh, whether it's their prescriptions or whatever treatment we're going to offer them uh, cost was was not an issue now in terms of my professional decisions and whatever it was no different than what I, I do now and so that was the nice aspect um, the only other thing that you really have to be adjusted to is that realizing that at any one time, really, your life is not your own. <clears throat> so, uh, like for me, uh, for example, after a year at being at Wright-Patterson, um, they came around uh, deciding who's going to be deployed, uh, Wright-Patterson being a large medical center and base. Uh, we had I was one of 10 general surgeons at Wright-Patterson at the time. So we were tasked with a lot of uh, deployments. And so, uh, you know, you get tagged to do a deployment for, and in my case, it was only four months. Uh, I was deployed to Haiti uh, from 19, well, it was September of 99 through uh, January of 2000. So I spent a millennium at, uh, in, uh, in Haiti. So. Where'd you go, Bill? Uh, it was Port-au-Prince. Oh, at Port-au-Prince. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, it's a lovely city. Yeah. <laughs> I was there last year. It was, it was just an amazing place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at an Air Force hospital or at a Haitian hospital? Well, it's actually a call. In it, in retrospect, it was a uh, it was a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, from the uh, the Air Force, uh, were, it was a multitask force uh, that was down there. So the Army provided the security. So we had Army Rangers out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky, doing uh, doing the uh, security. Uh, there were Navy CBs that were constructing roads and constructing schools. Uh, for the Haitians, and then the Air Force was tasked with the medical care. And it was part of a NATO force that was down there, so uh, we took care of, like, Argentinian soldiers that uh, need, needed care. And so it was, um, um, you know, a, an interesting experience because our, although that was our main task, was care for, uh, provide medical care for the armed forces and the NATO forces that were there, really the huge majority of what we did was humanitarian care. So uh, the Air Force had an air transportable hospital, and these are basically hospitals that they can dump out of the sky on a parachute and construct. It's basically a tent hospital, except the surgical facility is a hardened surgical facility that folds out. It's like a box and just folds out and, you know, has the air conditioning ventilation unit and that type of thing. Well, they had an air uh, transportable hospital constructed in a warehouse uh, just off the Port-au-Prince uh, airport. And that was our main hospital. So we had an x-ray and pharmacy and two surgical suites uh, there. So any of the major cases, we brought 
to our air transportable hospital. But we also took our show on the road. There was a place called Brothers Mission. Uh, it was run by a Catholic uh, brother um, that provided care. He had an AIDS ward uh, there, but then there was a large court area, and he had a school that was there. And once a week, the Army Rangers would go out, and uh, Haitians would line up, and there would be hundreds and hundreds of people lined up for medical care. And uh, the Army Rangers would line, them, uh, line patients up as um, this row is for dental care, this row is for surgical care, and this row is for, for medical care. And they would bring them into the, into the court area, and we would do, uh, the surgeons, we would do minor uh, surgicals on cots in the open air on those patients. And any ones that we deemed that we couldn't do there, then they'd be given slips to come to the uh, air transportable hospital uh, and uh, have further surgical care there. And then there was another a private that was a, a, French, uh, a French hospital um, set up through private uh, donations that we, uh, we uh, worked out of. Um, I'm kind of interested, what, what are some of the procedures that would fall under the open air category where you can just do them on the spot? Uh, basically lumps and bumps types of things. So epidermal inclusion, cysts, uh, skin lesions, even some, you know, small skin cancers, that type of thing. And, and also addressing some wounds. So they had often had a lot of wounds, maybe some minor burns, that type of thing. So that, yeah. that raises a question in my mind um, in terms of scope of practice, um, Bill, because the fact of the matter is is that you, the investment you made into being a general surgeon gives you some longevity in the practice of medicine, whereas I see the scope of practice for family doctors shrinking all the time and then move on the part of the corporate overlords to basically move nurse practitioners and PAs into a lot of the traditional roles of family medicine. And so what I've talked to the students about is expanding scope of practice. And so you mentioned a lot of procedures which traditionally were done by general practitioners. Um, I mean, I know GPs that actually did C-sections and did appendectomies too, so I'm not saying that we should encroach on that kind of turf for you guys. But I'm just saying, um, what con thoughts do you have? It, what, what informs me on this question is, in Iraq, there was a lack of orthopedic surgeons. And so they were teaching general surgeons to do X-fixes because it was really easy for an orthopedist to say, line the bones up, put the external fixtures on, this is how you do it. And so a lot of general surgeons did sort of primary orthopedic uh, trauma intervention in the, in the Middle East. What are the types of things, I mean, in your experience in those kind of bedside procedures, is this something that, uh, you know, a person that's oriented towards family medicine, something they should know in terms of a skill set? I mean, what are your thoughts about that in terms of minor surgical procedures? Well, I think so because I, I think like in a lot of areas of medicine, certain specialties have given up uh, the practice that used to be very, very common. Um, and I, I know, Todd, even, you know, being a third-year medical student here, I did rotations with, uh, you know, Dr. Rubin and uh, Dr. Marazon and Dr. Prasuti. And, you know, they were delivering babies, and, and a lot of uh, primary care doctors now don't, uh, don't deliver babies. Uh, so I think getting back some of that that was, was, was given up is, uh, is probably one of the biggest differences that family practice can do. And they're certainly well qualified to do the, a lot of the minor surgical uh, procedures. How does a, how does a, a, a medicine-oriented family practitioner get that experience, though? What, what should be the thoughts? Where would you say that they should be looking to find those experiences so they can get their hands on and, and, and learn them? Because I'm not sure a lot of residencies teach them aggressively anymore. Well, yeah, and that's, I think that's a problem. I think there are some programs, particularly oriented towards rural medicine, where access to care for surgical care is more problematic, where that is, is taught. So maybe trying to seek out those types of 
uh, training experiences or at least rotations where you can get that experience uh, would be beneficial as part of your training no matter what uh, area where you're doing your, you know, say your family practice uh, residency. Uh, one last follow-up on that, and then we need to break, I think, yeah. right for a second. So as far as doing a uh, rotation, if you are picking your surgical rotation, and I know where I think I know where the answer will be, Bill, on this, is um, what's the depth in terms of postdocs or, that are you're working with for a med student? Are they going to be sitting behind three or four residents and fellows, or are they going to be able to be working more one-on-one with you during their experiences? Well, uh, for me personally, it would be one-on-one, and I think really – Looking back on, on my experience, I think it's more beneficial for a student, a student, a third or even a fourth year medical student, uh, to really have that experience where you're working one-on-one with a, a surgeon and maybe not be the third or fourth house officer at a larger facility where, you know, there's interns and residents and, and uh, fourth-year students and you're the third-year students. I think you kind of get lost in the, in the whole shuffle. And, and for me personally, um, you know, rotating here my third and fourth year and having, you know, Dr. Axelrod uh, be my mentor for my third year surgical rotation had a profound impact in terms of not only my career choice, but how I practice and even to this day, how I teach my medical students. Yeah, I'm glad you echoed that because I, I think I, I, I was pretty sure you're going to go there. And I was fortunate enough to do my third and fourth year at Selby. And so it was a critical access hospital, one-on-one with the surgeons all the time. And to this day, um, via telemedicine, I've talked to surgeons that have, had, have taught me through procedures, uh, and I felt very comfortable with it because I had been there and I'd looked right at what the surgeon was looking at, and they told me what you can get into and what you can't without getting into too much trouble. And so that's an encouragement to any students. When you're thinking about your third and fourth rotations, you really want to do exactly what Dr. Klein said. You want to be with that individual, just like glue on their side and pick up everything you can from them because... When you start getting into uh, programs that have residencies, if you're a family practitioner and there's a surgical residency, you're going to be sitting in the in the in the weeds, and and there's going to be some dude in there who's going to make it their life life profession. Your hands are going to be holding a retractor; you won't see a thing. And so, really may, pay attention to that in terms of planning, because it may be the last good uh, experience you have as far as uh, getting surgical experience. Um, we're going to close the first segment up, and yeah. uh, and it's been just a great time. It's been really interesting. Yeah, learned a lot about surgery. All right. Well, yeah. Thank you. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, Audio engineered by Kyle Snyder and edited by Brian Plow. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. <laughs>